Praise the Lord for his faithful care of us when we trust in him. Today, in our Song of Solomon series, we come to chapter 8 and verse 5, and we have here a verse that beautifully captures the essence of our relationship with Jesus Christ in this world. The Song of Solomon is a very special part of God's Word for His church. It uses marriage to illustrate for us the relationship that Jesus Christ has with us, his people. The Bible frequently refers to the church as the bride of Christ. She is depicted as one bride, as we have seen, made up of many members. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is frequently presented in the Bible as the bridegroom. We are referred to, if we are unfaithful to him, is having committed adultery. Book of Hosea, and you find that the whole book is about that, and you find other books where it mentions that adultery, like in um, Ezekiel or in Isaiah, with divorcing because of the unfaithfulness. When we trust in other gods or in nations to deliver us rather than leaning on the Lord. And then at the end of the Bible, we have the great wedding feast that is presented to us when the bride, the church, is presented to Jesus without spot or blemish. One of the most wonderful things about this description of the church as Christ's bride is the emphasis that it places on the love and the affection that he has for us. His saving work in us makes us pleasing and delightful to him, which is really remarkable because, of course, before salvation comes to us, there's nothing good in us. And even after we still have much sin, all of our righteousnesses is filthy rags in that sense of before the perfect law of God. But there is real progress and real sanctification that happens by the grace of our Lord in salvation. And he delights in the fruit that we bring forth. The affections for him that we have are pleasing to him. In the song, it mentions how our fruit is a delight to his taste and how that the savor that comes from us, our affections is like precious myrrh and, and ointments and things that, are, that fill, fill the room with fragrance. So that what, we're talk, what we see in the Song of Solomon is not only that kind of unconditional love that is so important to us that he has for us, but also the delight in us, like a, an affection that he, he, he's pleased with what he sees in us as his people and what he is making us to be. Yes, the Song of Songs, as the Holy Spirit calls it, is a very special part of God's word that highlights our relationship of love with Jesus, our husband. It speaks of true believers, of course, as his bride. The church we know is a mixed community. That There are those who just profess, but who don't really believe. But uh, it speaks of the true believers who are his bride, that make up his bride, how he delights in seeing their progress. Today, we come to this single verse that beautifully captures the essence of our relationship 
with our Lord in this world. Last week, we came to chapter 8, and we saw in the first four verses how we, the bride, told him how wonderful it would be if he were like a brother, like our brother. He is such a holy and majestic king that there is some intimidation on our part before him. We realize that, you know, I'm not in the same class. He is the son of God. He is holy and without blemish. Though, though he reveals himself to us sweetly, we're insecure because of the awe that we have with him of his holiness and his majesty. It's not that we don't want him to remain holy and pure and majestic and glorious and sovereign and all the things that he is. We want that very much. But we want to become, as his bride, more and more comfortable with him, more and more familiar with him. We want him to be accessible to us. Because we've seen in the Song of Solomon that there are times when, when there's a separation that goes on and we we look for him and we can't find him. And it can be for different reasons. Sometimes it's because of our sin or different reasons. But we want him to be, oh, that you would be like a brother. So I could always come and always talk to you. You know, that you're someone I grew up with, someone that understands me, this sort of thing. In verse 3, we saw how he responded to that longing that, that the bride expressed, that we expressed as his bride, by uh, taking us up in his arms. He, his left hand under our head, and his right hand embracing us. Very much of a, you know, a, a, a position of affection that is there. With great joy, we spoke to the young disciples of the church, the daughters of Jerusalem, and charged them to wait for this love, to grow up in them, not to force it, not to do something artificial to, to fabricate this love, but to actually wait for the, the real deal. It's something that cannot be rushed. It grows up as we, as we engage faithfully in the means of grace. We come to love him more and more. We must not take shortcuts. Love will come. Now in this life, it grows up by degrees, little by little, but on and on it grows. And then at the last day, when he comes to us in glory and calls us to himself as his bride, then it will all be in fullness, like that, that, uh, that, that closeness and that love. The daughters of Jerusalem, again, whom we understand in the song to be the young disciples who belong to the church, okay, they're professing believers that uh, have come into the church and they're learning, they've just, they're, they're new at it, more newer, younger folk, and they look upon the church of which they are a part and they marvel to see the bride in his loving embrace. You know how that is. As a new believer, they come into the church and they're excited to know the Lord Jesus as their Savior. And they look to see how do these people live? And well, how do we live? You know, they're part of the church. And then they see the, some of the older, more mature believers that have walked with Jesus for a long time that are very very comfortable in their relationship, very confident of him, very, very trusting of him. They see them in the embrace of the Lord and they see that this is the church. This is what it is. And, and it brings forth, they marvel when they see the church in his loving embrace. And it brings forth this, from them this question that we're looking at today. It's actually only the first part of verse five that we're looking at 
But it's so rich with application that that's all I'm going to cover today. So as I say, the scripture reading is very, very short. Listen carefully. I'll I'll read it to you now. The first part of verse 5, chapter 8, verse 5. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 5. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? And there we end the reading of God's word. Now that could be, it could be the question of someone other than the daughters of Jerusalem. There's some talk about, you know, who is asking this question? Who's making this observation? You'll see in the New King James, it says the relatives. Well, that's not inspired. That's just the translator said that that maybe it's the relatives because she's coming to her community. So they're looking and, and seeing her. Or it could be, and I would say that in a way it is the relatives. It's her brothers and sisters in the church. So maybe so. But uh, it could be the friends of other friends of the Lord. Uh, we've talked before. We've seen that there's a, a place where he seems to call his friends to come and enjoy the fruit with him. And we understood that to be perhaps angels or even ministers that are ministering to the church and delighting in the progress of the church and saying, look at the bride. You know, they're part of the bride too. But again, the church is complex and she's got many different members and we rejoice to see the progress, like ministers rejoice to see the progress of the, of the saints. Maybe it's the departed believers that are looking on and seeing these things. It doesn't really matter, but many think it is, as I do, that it is the daughters of Jerusalem here. Because the verse 4 before that is where she is addressing the daughters of Jerusalem. And so then they say, who is this? Like they're looking. She's told them like you know, she's in his arms and she has this this relationship of, of love with him that's very evident. And uh, then she says, wait, wait for this love to grow. Don't, don't force this, I charge you. And they say, who is this? You know, what, what is going on here? This is, this is amazing. So they're, they're learning of his great love for the church of which they are a part. They will come to know his love more and more in time. So they look and they say, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? The question shows the amazement of the daughters of Jerusalem, the amazement that they have as they learn of the church's relationship to him. And as I said before, it captures the very essence of our relationship, of our walk with the Lord in this world. Who is this, right? So near to him. I mean, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Holy One, the Son of God who came down from heaven. He is from heaven. She is, that's with him, is of the fallen race of Adam. She is from the wilderness. One who has been ruined by sin and defilement and who is under the wrath and curse of God. How is she with him? Who is this coming out of the wilderness, leaning on him? They see that he is bringing her out of the wilderness. She is coming up from the wilderness, out of the wilderness. He has gone there to rescue her and bring her into his father's house. Look at how much she has changed from what she was. As they see her, they see She's not like she was before. Like she has changed. She's hardly recognizable. There's one member over there that was a drunkard, and now they're rejoicing in the Lord and filled with the Holy Spirit. 
There's another one who is a thief. And now they're giving freely to others. What has happened to her? Look at her. Her affections for God are growing stronger and stronger. She's growing in holiness. And he's delighting in her growth and her progress. He's delighting in her that that used to be repulsive in his eyes. He is bringing her to his house from the wilderness in glory. It is obvious that he is bringing her to his house in glory up from the wilderness to be with his as she leans on him. And that's the other next thing that we see, that she is leaning upon him. This speaks of her faith. That's the nature of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? That we have faith in him. She, see how she relies on him to bring her up out of the wilderness. She's leaning on him or she couldn't make progress. She couldn't come out of the wilderness. She's relying on him. She relies on him for righteous standing because on her own, she's defiled and polluted. But in his righteousness, she is righteous. She depends entirely upon him. She's leaning on him. Her very strength is from him. Her progress is from him. Her hope is from him. She doesn't have hope in herself. She doesn't have hope leaning on anyone else or anything else, her own understanding or her own wisdom or somebody else's, the world's wisdom. She looks to no other. She cannot lean on what is in her or look to the counsel of the worldly wise. She does not trust in riches, honors, and pleasures to make her happy. But she looks to him as her happiness and what he has promised to her. When the, tri- when the trials um, hit her the hardest, she leans the hardest on him. And she emerges from those trials trusting in him even more than ever before. Thankful for the stronger trust and the growth that has come through those trials. So that she says, it was good for me that I have been afflicted. And then the daughters of Jerusalem, looking still, they see also that she leans on him, how? As her beloved. She loves him. Okay, she has a trust in him, the kind of safe trust that you have, where you know that you can rely on someone, that they are trustworthy, that they care about you. And she has an admiring look upon him, an admiring love of seeing his character and his holiness and his perfection, seeing his majesty and glory and greatness. She is ever more intimate with him. She's growing in that comfort and familiarity with him as the one who is near to her and who accepts her. And and he so obviously loves her. It's very evident as he has her leaning on him and he supports her that he loves her. They delight then to be going on together as man and wife, the bride of Christ and Christ as he rescues her again and again, and he, as he brings her out of the wilderness more and more, her love and admiration for him deepen. If you have someone that cares for you like that and is always helping you and benefiting you and reaching out to you and giving to you, then you grow in your delight in that person. And interestingly, the one who does that for you 
also has a stronger love for you as they go forward. The daughters of Jerusalem then look on with great admiration. Who is this coming up out of the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? What a lovely thing it is. What progress is being made by the bride. Now, this relationship of the church leaning on her beloved is seen throughout the Bible. Let's consider that now. We find it in the entire history of God's elect people. Over and over, he comes to them in the wilderness, when they're in the wilderness. All those that receive him lean on him. And to those who lean on him or believe in him, he gives them the right to become the sons of God. Then he graciously brings them out of the wilderness by his gracious power and strength. All the while there is growth in their relationship with him, he delights more and more in them as they grow, and they delight more and more in him, uh, in him as they grow and as they learn more of him. Is this not the theme that flows through redemptive history? I mean, what do we see right from the very beginning? After the fall, he comes to Adam and Eve. They went from paradise to the wilderness because of their sin. The wilderness of death and isolation, separation from God, bondage to sin. He says, lean on me and my son will come. Essentially, that's what he says to them. I'm going to send my son that will be born of a woman who will crush the serpent's head who led you into rebellion so that his bondage, your bondage to him, will be broken. And I will put war between you and him so that you'll turn against him and come back to God. All who are, all who are delivered will be brought out of the wilderness in that way. So many, all those who, who believed, who leaned on, on the Lord in that early day were received that salvation. But it was a very small number in the ancient world, wasn't it? Very small number. So that by the time of Noah, the world is pretty heavily populated, it would appear. But there's only one family in the whole earth. During that time, God left things to kind of people to kind of go on their own. He only showed his special electing grace to just one family in each generation. And they lived, of course, for a very long time in those days. And so that in the day of Noah, it was just Noah and his family. No one else. No one else was believing. No one else was leaning on the Lord. Only Noah. So Noah and his family leaned on him and he delivered them. He brought them into the ark because they leaned on him and they were delivered from the wilderness of the flood. And they came out as God's people serving him. So the whole world was reset, was restored. But then we have Babel. And what do they do at Babel? They have drifted away again. They're leaning on themselves rather than on the Lord. Let us make a great name for ourselves, lest we be scattered. We will build a tower that reaches up into the heavens, they say. We're going to make ourselves secure and strong by bonding together with each other. And of course, you know that God in his wrath separated them and confused their languages to show them that, that they were on a, a, a sinful enterprise. 
But then God came to Abram, who later, of course, was called Abraham. He came to one of those families that was separated, one of the nations that was divided at Babel. And Abraham and his wife were barren. And God said, I will make your name great. I will bless you. I will make you secure. God, lean on me and I will do all of this. Don't lean on yourself like they were doing at Babel, but lean on me. To, it really it lays out the same things they were trying to do at Babel. God says, I will do these things for you. And of course, Abraham believed God. He leaned on him and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Then we have Jacob. Jacob and his drifting sons. Yet the Lord comes to one of those sons, Joseph, and brings prophecies to him about how he is going to be the one who delivers the family from the wilderness. And Joseph believes those prophecies. His brothers despise him for those prophecies, the dreams that he had. Joseph continues to lean on him, even though he is brought into the wilderness of slavery in a foreign land, away from his people, completely cut off. He remains faithful because he leans on the Lord. How can I do this great sin against God, he says, when Potiphar's wife tempted him? And how can I do this against God? He leans on the Lord and he is delivered by his hand. And then he ends up, of course, being in a position of great authority in Egypt. And sure enough, he leads his brothers to lean on the Lord, just as he has been leaning on the Lord and brings them out. They come out of the wilderness of famine and into a prosperous place in Egypt. But over the years, Israel is brought into the wilderness again, even in Egypt, the wilderness of oppressive slavery. But the Lord comes to Moses and says, lean on me. And Moses leans and he leads the whole nation to lean on the Lord so that they are brought out of Egypt by God's mighty hand of power. And they're brought through the wilderness by God's provision in the wilderness and brought into the land that God had promised them, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will teach you my ways. I will show you my, the way that you're reconciled to me through the uh, rituals that will depict my salvation to, before you. They're taught to love him and to lean on him for life and liberty and forgiveness and blessing, and they do so. We could speak of the period of the judges when Israel repeatedly stops leaning on him. And when repeatedly God raises up a judge who does lean on him and the people are delivered by the mighty hand of God from the wilderness of the many oppressions that they have at that time. Again and again, he comes to them and again and again, they lean on him. And again and again, he brings them out from the grip of their enemies. Then there is David, the man after God's own heart. He leans on the Lord And the nation is delivered from the wilderness of disorder where every man does what's right in his own eyes. And they're brought together under the rule of the Lord. They lean on the Lord and receive the promise of the kingdom. Being taught of the greater David, Jesus Christ, that will come. Being promised of that David that will come that they lean are to lean upon. They harden themselves, though, after that, and are cut off from the temple 
and the land to be brought back into the wilderness again, and first in Assyria and then in Babylon. But the Lord comes to them again and makes promises of a new covenant that those who lean on him embrace. Those who lean, as was always the case, will have ultimate deliverance from the wilderness of this fallen world and be brought to glory by the beloved, by Jesus Christ. Today, we read in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, and the reason I read that is because Mark, more than the other books in the New Testament, particularly focuses on the wilderness theme. Right from the very beginning, he does that. And it is, so this theme, this is the theme of the Old Testament as we just saw, and it's the theme of all of the New Testament, that we lean on the Lord and are brought out of the wilderness into his kingdom. But Mark makes it especially explicit. So let's look at Mark then to see how this is brought out in the New Testament when our Lord Jesus comes. Mark opens by telling us that John's baptism, chapter 1, you might want to follow in your Bibles here, that that John's baptism is the beginning of the gospel. That's an interesting way to say it. And where was John? John was in the wilderness, baptizing a people that were filthy because of their sins, giving them the symbol of washing and the symbol that represented the renewing that comes by the Holy Spirit. So he was in the wilderness because that's where God's people were, and it was symbolic of the fact that they needed salvation from the Lord. The gospel he preached was that one was coming who was mightier than he, John, and that that one would baptize with the Holy Spirit. He said, I baptize you with water. I'm the one that sprinkles clean water upon you, but he is the one that will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He would save them from their sins and bring them to God. His message then, John's message, is to lean on him that you may be delivered from the wilderness. Repent of your sin and lean on the one that I'm telling you about who's coming and you will be brought from the wilderness into his kingdom. That's how the gospel of Mark begins. And Mark says, this is the beginning of the gospel. He doesn't get into the birth narratives and all of those things. He goes right to the heart of it, says this is where the gospel begins. The wilderness preaching to the people that the kingdom of God is at hand. Then Jesus comes and he echoes John's message. The only difference is that he is the one who is the king that is to be leaned upon, the savior from heaven that is to be leaned upon that John spoke about. But he says the same thing, to repent and believe the gospel, and then you will be brought into the kingdom. The kingdom is upon you. In, in Mark 1, 16 through 20, he gathers uh, his first disciples, and he says, lean on me, and I will make you fishers of men. In other words, you'll bring people, you who have come out of the wilderness to follow me, will take other people and fish them out of the wilderness to come also and lean on me. And in 121 through 28, 
he delivers in the synagogue. He goes into the synagogue and there's one there with demons and he delivers from demons, showing that lean on me and I will break the bondage with Satan, your bondage to Satan. I will set you free. I've over, I overcome him. In uh, 129 through 34, he goes and sees Peter's mother who is, who is ill and he shows that he has the authority also to deliver those who lean on him from sickness and from, and then many more from bondage. The people all come to him and, and he delivers them all. And in 135 through 39, he goes preaching through Galilee and those who lean on him receive the kingdom. Those who do not, who reject him, do not. 140 through 45, a leper leans on him and he shows by this that we are cleansed from our defilement that makes us obnoxious to God if we lean on him. I am willing, he says, be clean. And in 2, 1 through 12, a paralytic leans on him and is made to walk, but even more to the, to the uh, blessing of God's people, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you in order to show that he, if we lean on him, has authority to forgive sins. And everyone marvels that how is it that he can forgive sins? Because he is the son of God and because of what he's going to do. In 2, 13 through 17, this is even furthered, a sinful tax collector leans on him and is accepted and forgiven and even made one of his disciples. Being brought from the wilderness of his tax collectorship and rebellion into the kingdom of God, showing that even harlots and, and tax collectors could be saved. In 2.18 through 3.6, his disciples lean on him and are delivered from in following him from the wilderness of legalism in rituals. They learn to delight in the Sabbath is a day that the Lord has given them to set aside for his worship rather than a day where you follow rules in an arbitrary kind of a way. And in 3, 7 through 19, multitudes begin to follow him. He calls the 12 out that they might be with him. Why? That they might be with him so that they would learn what it is to lean upon him in this world, in the wilderness of this world, and then be able to teach others to lean on him, giving us the word of God and instructing and laying the foundation of the church. He says, come and be with me, that you might be with me, and then that you will be, as he told them initially, fishers of men. In Mark 4, he teaches them about the importance of continuing to lean on him in the parable of the sower. There are some who come only for a time and they don't really ever lean on him. They outwardly profess, but uh, they, they're more interested in the cares of the world and the riches of the world than they are in really leaning upon Jesus for the blessing that he gives. Or they're more worried about problems and trials and troubles and all those things in the world. So they, they soon leave him because they just came to get a better lot in this world. And when it doesn't happen, then they they move on their way. But those who lean, continue to lean on him are the ones who are brought out of the wilderness into his kingdom. And they continue to grow and multiply. He talks about first the blade, and then the ear, and then the full corn will appear. There's a, there's a growth and a maturity that takes place. 
You'll be like, the, the king will be like a mustard seed as you go about and spread. There'll be more, the bride will grow larger and larger and larger with people from all the nations that will come. He goes on to calm the storms in the wilderness for them as they go about with him, showing that he has authority over nature in 435 through 41. They marvel, who is this? He commands even the wind and the waves and they obey him. He raises the dead. He goes to the, the young girl, that had the 12-year-old that had, had died and they mock when he goes in and says that she's only sleeping. And then he raises her up from death. That's in 521 through 43. And then he provides food in the wilderness for his people. He is the bread that came down from heaven to feed the world, to feed our souls even with the life-giving blessing that comes from him when we lean upon him. In chapter 7, 1 through 23, he explains that coming out of the wilderness involves more than cleaning up the outside. He says it's not what is outside that defiles you, It's the corruption that is within you. There is a wilderness in here, in our affections, in our heart. And he says that leaning on him, we will be delivered from that. We need a savior. We we have to lean on him to be able to come out of the wilderness. Then in 724 to 810, he shows that he also meets Gentiles in the wilderness and brings out those who lean on him from the wilderness while rejecting his own people who do not lean on him. Uh, his own covenant people, because he, he, he meets the Pharisees in that chapter, in uh, chapter 8, verse 11 through 26, who refuse to lean on him. They say, give us more signs. And, you know, they'd already been given plenty of signs. But these Gentiles, the, the Syrophoenician woman and the, the uh, deaf man that was mute, and uh, then he feeds the 4,000 in the Gentile territories, showing that those Gentiles who lean on him can also be saved, which is a wonderful news. Now, all of this brings forth a confession from his disciples. He says, who do you say that I am? Who do men say I am and who do you say that I am? And Peter answers for them, and he says, you are the Christ. You know, you are the Son of God. And that occurs in 8, 27 through 30. So uh, he's the one, the one who has come to bring, Peter recognizes, he's the one who has come to bring his people out of the wilderness, what God has promised all along, into the kingdom of God. Through him, we're brought out of the wilderness into the kingdom of God. Along the way, Mark shows that Jesus, in order to do this, in order to bring his bride out of the wilderness, had to himself go into the wilderness. He not only had to become flesh and leave the glory of heaven and come here in human flesh, coming down into the wilderness where we live because of our fall, but he also had to go into an even deeper wilderness. In chapter 1, he meets John in the wilderness and is baptized there. John wonders, why have you come? You don't, you're not in the wilderness. You're the Holy One. Why would you be baptized? Because his people need to be cleansed. He came to cleanse his people from their sin. 
So then uh, immediately, what did the Spirit, the Spirit came upon him because he is the anointed one. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our prophet, priest, and king that God appointed. What's the first thing the Spirit does after coming upon him in his, in his baptism? He sends him into the wilderness, leads him into the wilderness to be tempted. He has to go into the wilderness to face the temptation that Adam faced and the temptation that his people Israel faced, both failing, and he is tested. He does not fail, and he comes forth endued with power and grace, preaching with hope to his people the deliverance that he has come to bring from the wilderness. He has conquered the wilderness, you see, but he's not finished. He must enter the wilderness that he might conquer and bring us out. He must conquer sin and temptation. He must conquer death and the curse. So what does our Lord Jesus do in chapter 8? After Peter's confession, Jesus begins to tell the 12 that he must go into the deepest wilderness, the deepest wilderness of all, the cross, that he will be officially rejected by the highest court of the Jewish church, will suffer at their hands and will be killed and crucified, but will rise on the third day. He says all that in 831. The disciples are dismayed by this, as shown initially by Peter's rebuke of him in 832, which is followed by a sharp reprimand from Christ. Get behind me, Satan. You're not savoring the things of God. And by his instruction that they too will have to suffer in the wilderness for his sake and the sake of the gospel. That they must also bear their cross. Not the same cross that he He's the only one that goes into that deeper wilderness under the wrath and curse of God, of all of God's people. But others also will, the disciples will not be sitting on comfortable thrones and positions in this world like they dreamed of, but they will be called to endure the wilderness in this world for his sake, the rejection of him in the, in the gospel in bringing many sons out to glory. So he shows Peter, James, and John, then his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he also speaks of his departure. He speaks with Elijah and Moses about his departure, that he's going to be cut off, that he's going to be crucified. And he lays that out again to his disciples who are thinking, maybe this is the glory that we've been looking for that's going to come. No, the wilderness is still, he's, he's got to go to the wilderness. They have to endure wilderness. Then from 914 to 1052, he instructs them in the way of the cross, in the way of the wilderness. He repeated, here he repeatedly speaks of his own suffering multiple times and that he must endure, but he at the same time always, when he speaks of his sufferings, instructs them in the way of sacrificial living for others. He teaches them that in this world, we must suffer for the sake of others, following his example. He addresses everything from their jockeying for positions and status that they seem to have such a fondness for, always going to that discussion, to sectarianism, where they're rivals to people that are on the side of the Lord, offending others. He talks about what a terrible thing it is to offend those that are, are coming to the Lord. He, he talks about the problem of separating marriage unions, what God has joined together. He 
tells them of caring for children, that they shouldn't look at the children as nobodies, but they should reach out to them and care for them. He, uh, he tells them that, and, and he warns them with the incident with the rich young ruler about the danger of supposing that they have a sufficiency within themselves because of their own goodness, because of their own riches, their own success, their own strength, that they have something to offer that they can lean upon themselves. No, the rich young ruler needed to lean on him just as much as everybody else did. Jesus makes that very plain. In chapter 11 through 13, he confronts those who are in authority who oppose his kingdom. And he prophesies of their destruction. Yes, he's going to go to the cross, but they're going to be destroyed because of their opposition and their refusal to lean on the Messiah. He makes it clear that they cannot prevail against his kingdom, that authority has been given to him, that the Father will come and judge those wicked vine dressers that have tried to take over his kingdom. He will go, Jesus will go to the wilderness, but only to come out that he might bring those who lean on him out. In 11, 1 through 11, he enters Jerusalem on a donkey, the triumphal entry, and he accepts praise as the one that the people recognize has come to save. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they say. And in 11, 12 through 26, he instructs his disciples that he will bring down the leaders of the Jews who oppose him. He drives out the money changers. He instructs his disciples to pray for the removal of the mountain that would try to stand in the way of his kingdom. The peop- these, these leaders in Jerusalem that are opposing him, he says, you see this mountain? If you pray that it be cast into the sea, it will obey you. And that's exactly what he says will happen in chapter 13, that the, uh, he prophesies of the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple and declares that he will gather the elect from all the nations after that destruction uh, through the work of his apostles as they go out in the world and tell people to lean on Christ. Uh, but back in chapter eleven twenty-seven through 12, 40, he also sets forth his authority as the Christ from John the Baptist, and, and then he declares that he is the rejected stone that was mentioned in Psalm 118 that becomes the cornerstone uh, on which his people are supported and upheld the cornerstone on which the whole church is established and built. They all lean upon the cornerstone, you see. All who are saved lean upon the cornerstone and are brought out of the wilderness into his kingdom. And in 12, 35 through 37, he reminds them from Psalm 110 that he is the Lord even of King David. He is David's son, but David also called him Lord recognizing that he must lean on him also. So then, okay, so then he has this prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem and the gathering of the elect. But then to the great dismay of his disciples, he heads to the deep wilderness of the cross for his people. The disciples are are just overwhelmed with what is happening here. They don't know what to make of it. In 14, 12 through 31, he institutes the Lord's Supper and declares to his disciple that, the, that one of them will betray him. And he declares that all of them will forsake him. But he presents to them, I am the sacrifice. 
this is my body. This bread represents my body given for you. This cup represents my blood shed for the remission of your sins. I am the sacrifice that you must lean upon if you would be saved. In 1432 through 42, he goes to pray against temptation that will come to him as he faces the cross. And he instructs his disciples to pray that they enter not into temptation. He prays they don't. He continues on faithfully carrying on, bearing the cross to the dismay of his disciples. Then he goes from there to the cross. He is arrested and we have the whole ordeal of his crucifixion from 1443 to the end of chapter 15. But just as he said he would, he, is raised, he rises again on the third day. In chapter 16, in 16, 14 through 20, he calls his disciples to go out and preach the good news to all the nations, declaring what? How do we put it in the language of the wilderness? That whoever leans on him will be rescued from the wilderness. His words are actually these, Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, this good news of deliverance from the wilderness, to every creature. He who believes and is baptized, just John's message, will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover so that he confirmed the word of the apostles through all of those signs that were done by those who came and leaned upon him in order that we may trust the word of God now that has been given to us. They have told us about leaning on Jesus and what that means. And now we have that in the Holy Scriptures in which we follow and trust as we go forward leaning upon the Lord in the wilderness of this world. So Mark begins in the wilderness with the promise of deliverance by Christ for those who lean upon him. Then Mark shows how Jesus overcomes and conquers the wilderness, all the while teaching his disciples to lean on him as they will be going, as they go through the wilderness of this world. Mark ends with him sending them to call all the people to lean on him in the wilderness Okay, they're in the wilderness. They're to go as those who are in the wilderness to other people in the wilderness and to teach them to lean on Jesus that they might be brought out of the wilderness and into the kingdom of his father forever. How beautiful are the words of our text. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? It reminds us that As we go on with Jesus in the wilderness world, we go with him as our beloved. Okay, I say that again. It reminds us that as we go on with Jesus in this wilderness world, we go with him as our beloved. That is the character that he sustains with us is he is our beloved. Indeed, the goal of the whole journey of being brought out of the wilderness as a pilgrim here in this world, being brought to the kingdom of God, to the celestial city, is that leaning upon him, we grow in our love for him. That's what is supposed to happen. As he leads us progressively out of sin, that our affection for him grows and deepens. 
We trust him more, as I said before. We admire him more, seeing his grace and power. We love him more. We go through the hard things of this wilderness with him supporting us and caring for us. And this deepens our love for him even more as he holds us up and we know he holds us up. Our love keeps growing as we lean on him and as he delivers us. It's a lovely thing. In Mark, we only see glimpses of this love, don't we? I mean, nobody really loves him very much in Mark, to tell you the truth. Um, Very few even understand what he is doing when he descends into the deeper wilderness of the cross. When he bears the cross, they don't even get it. They're like, what is he doing? And they forsake him, right? His own disciples forsake him. But there is one who displays her deep love for him. There's more than one, really. But there's one in particular that displays her deep love for him by anointing him as he goes to the cross with costly oil of spikenard. This outward act was a true display of the love, the beautiful aromatic love that was in her for him that he take the kind of love that he takes so much delight in, as we've seen in the song, a fragrance that is, is pleasing to him. That, that oil that she had, that precious oil, was reflective of the love that was in her heart. And what does Jesus do with that? He says, this is what I'm looking for. He memorializes that because it's this event that it, it stands out. And Jesus says, Mark 14, 9, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel, this good news about lean on me and you'll be brought out of the wilderness, wherever this is preached, he says, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. I want this to be on record because this is what you lean on me as your beloved. You don't lean on me just as a functionary that comes to like a machine to to move you from the wilderness into the kingdom of God. No, you come in relationship with me as the one that you love and the one that loves you as the beloved one. This is so beautiful. Jesus makes much of this. So the question then, what about you? Are you among those who make up the bride of Christ? Are you leaning upon Jesus Christ for your salvation? Are you leaning upon him to bring you out of the wilderness of sin and death and of this world under its curse into his house, into his kingdom of righteousness? Are you coming up? Are you making progress, coming up on his arm, under his, by his support, coming up by his grace from the wilderness of sin, leaning on him for forgiveness and for transformation of your heart and your life? Are you leaning on him so that you're being brought out of the old wilderness ways into his beautiful kingdom ways? And are you, as you come up from the wilderness, leaning on him, as you come up from the wilderness, leaning on him, are you growing in your love for him? Is he your beloved? Are you learning to trust him more? Are you more and more grateful to him? Are you filled with more and more delight in him? Do you have more and more praise for him as you come through the wilderness? leaning upon him as your beloved. 
I admonish you all to lean on him. What an excellent thing it is to come out of the wilderness of sin and death, leaning upon the beloved. Who is this? It is his bride. It is the one who was in the wilderness, ruined and defiled. Who is this? Now she is leaning on the Son of God, and he is bringing her to his home to live with him as his bride in his house forever and ever. Please stand and let's call on his name. O Lord, our Lord, we come to you with great delight that you are, Lord Jesus, that you are the Savior of the world, that you became flesh and dwelt among us, that you came here into this wilderness world that was fallen under sin and corruption and defilement, that you came here not because it was a lovely place, not because it was a desirable place, for you were in glory with the Father, but you came here in order that you might bring us out, in order that you might bring us in to your house. And we thank you, Lord, and praise you for the hope that we have, because you will not fail to bring us out of the wilderness, nor will you fail to bring us into your house forever and ever, nor will you fail to completely and radically transform us so that we will be a lovely and a beautiful bride for you, a bride that you cherish and that you delight in, a bride in whom you find no spot or blemish. When your work is complete, then we will be truly pure and holy and lovely. We will be, as you have called us to be holy, as you are holy. We thank you and praise you, Lord Jesus. And we praise you that you also have already gone to the deep wilderness for us, bearing our sins, bearing in your own body our iniquity, and receiving the chastisement for our peace. We praise you, O Lord, that you have suffered for our sake and that you have borne all that was required to be borne in order that we might have full and complete forgiveness and justification. We praise you, O Lord, that we come not leaning on our own righteousness, but we come leaning on you and your righteousness. We come not leaning on our own strength to make progress out of the wilderness. We could never get out of the wilderness, never, never, ever, from the bondage and from, the, from all of the sin and the corruption and the defilement, Never could we come out, but we can now, leaning upon you, O Lord. I pray, Lord, that everyone here, everyone listening, that everyone who is hearing these words would indeed lean on you, Lord, and that they would find new life in you, Lord, that they would be delivered up out of the wilderness to be your people forever and ever in your house. Thank you so much, Lord for what you have done for us as your people. Help us to make known this good news the way you told your disciples to go into the world and to preach to every creature the gospel, the good news, that there is deliverance from the wilderness by leaning on Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Anyone who leans will be saved. This is all that is required of us, that we come desiring to be saved 
leaning upon you, and you will never, ever fail anyone that comes to you. You will never cast them out. Oh, Lord, thank you for the confidence and the hope that we can have because you have promised and your promises never, ever fail. Lord, please keep us and preserve us and help us as we go through the wilderness to lean on you in the very hardest times to lean the hardest on you. And in the times when we're sort of glancing along and not paying attention, Lord, that we would remember that we must also lean on you then when things maybe we don't feel that we need to at times. Certainly we do need to. And we pray that you would help us. And Father, as we do, as we go forward, we pray that we would love you. We don't want to be people that are delivered by a a machine or something. We want to be those who are delivered by the one who loves us and came to rescue us and bring us out, that we ride off as his bride with him into the sunset, as it were. We ride off to his house with him to, to love him and to live with him forever and ever. Father, we pray that you would help us then to, to be ever growing in our delight in who you are as we learn of you and as we feel your deliverance and your grace in our lives as we're transformed by your saving help. Oh, Lord, we have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to do. Oh, Lord, that we might make this word known and that we might delight in it ourselves. Thank you for the hope and the glory that is set before us, O Lord, in your house forever and ever with you. Bless us now as we come to the table of the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now the blessing of the Lord our God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.